Hey, before we get started, we wanted to ask you, our listeners, for your feedback for our upcoming Season 3 retrospective episode. We're asking for submissions, and you can write in or record a short audio blurb telling us about your favorite moment in the third season of Northern Exposure. We'll give you a shout-out or play a recording on air when we discuss Season 3 as a whole. Send your submissions to the email address northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. And thanks again for listening to the show and writing in. And now, back to your regular broadcast. my confusion here, but you two are already married. Who told you that? You did. Uh, several times. I, I distinctly remember you referring to Eve as my wife. Oh, I see. So I, uh, I owe you an apology? I knew it. I knew they were already married. Or, like, talked that they were already married. That's why I was so confused. Yeah, we were talking about this at the end of the last episode when you were trying to predict, uh, yeah, because obviously it's called Our Wedding. We have Adam and Eve. Eve is pregnant. But, uh, yeah, I mean, they're already, they're, according to the the show, they are already married. Yeah, I guess they're married squared now. They're, they're married <laughs> times married. Yeah. Well, the quick, in this opening scene, Adam quickly retcons it by saying, you know, they, you know, I, he, I don't know, he, I, don't, I don't even think he really gives a good reason. He sort of just like goes off on a tangent about how man loves woman and like how every man wants to be in love with the perfect woman. And then he was like, uh, yeah, you got me, Fleischman. I'm, I lied. Uh, we're fiancé. Yeah, and he's belligerent about it, too. <laughs> like, he's mad. It, like, I, I think that happens anytime. Like, anytime he is in an uncomfortable situation, he lashes out as his defense mechanism instead of admitting that maybe it's a confusing situation and the other person is owed some explanation. Yeah, that's kind of like, um, that's Adam's, like, that's kind of the humor that comes from Adam is that he can turn any, any normal conversation into like a yelling match for whatever reason. <laughs> uh, Lee, what are we, what are we talking about here? We're talking about the 1990s television series, Northern Exposure, uh, ran on ABC. This episode that we're talking about today is called Our Wedding. It's the 22nd episode, the penultimate episode in season three. So yeah, this is like right before the finale. We got to get everything. I, I, there's a lot of uh, supporting cast returning. I mean, obviously Adam and Eve, but all the characters that were like supporting are, are coming back, coming out of the woodwork. You got to get them in before the season close. Yeah, I like that. I like that they're getting all these old established characters that are guest stars like Officer Szymanski, uh last episode or I'm sorry, the one two episodes before had Ron and Eric. Mm-hmm. We're, we're just getting these established townsfolks back. Um, still waiting on the mayor. Yeah, feel like <laughs> feel like she should be more influential. We lost that chance. I think we talked about it because there was like an earlier episode where they called the town hall meeting, but the mayor just conveniently never showed. So or or wasn't in town. Uh, but we uh we get Bernard again, who was in Sicily last episode. He left at the end of the episode but only to come back at the beginning of this episode. So it's kind of pointless. Like, why did he have to leave in the first place? I forgot. Did, he already, oh, go did he already have a car last episode or did he purchase a car between I'm, last episode and this episode? I'm pretty sure he already had a car. However, at the beginning of this episode, 
Chris reacts to the car as if it's new, like a new, a newer car. Uh, let me actually go back and let me see. So they go step outside. We don't see his truck yet or his car. Let's see at the end of the episode because then he leave at the end. Yeah, he leaves yeah. in a blue Volvo. So what kind of car does he have? It's in a this red episode? one this time. <laughs> Why? He switched. Switch primary colors, right? Why That's a primary color? Yeah, it was just in the span of one episode. So this is, I think we were talking about this in an earlier episode of the podcast because we were noticing the continuity of Chris's hair length, how that sort of jumps around in a strange, like one episode he has really long hair, then it, then it gets short, and then it's short for maybe a couple episodes, then it's long just randomly in an episode. Like, yeah, so it really makes me question the order Maybe they had shot these all or, or a group of them in a bunch and then decided to release them in a particular order. I don't know. Hmm. Maybe he participated in some uh, Cash for Clunkers thing. <laughs> yeah. Got a new vehicle that way. It's an old, that's an old joke. That's a 2000, <laughs> that would have been so relevant in 2010, 2009. Like around it's there. like not old enough for the show, but too old for the podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's sweet spot right there. <laughs> um, well, before we go any further, Charles, we should mention that this podcast is called the Northern Overexposure Podcast. We like to overanalyze every episode of the show, Northern Exposure. Um, and we do that with, you know, I, I've seen the show a, a number of times over the years. I, I think I wa started watching it in high school on DVDs, and, and uh, Charles, this is uh, your t first time, every time we're watching an episode, it's sort of your first glance into what's happening. Yeah, every single time, a first fresh hit of Sicily, just straight into my <laughs> veins, every single time. And normally we have a guest on the podcast, and it's usually someone who has never seen the show before, just, just like Charles, except literally not a single episode. So complete fish out of water. But this episode is special. I guess we should say it's perhaps a little controversial for the podcast and for the the TV series. So our guest, uh, who will go unnamed, watched the episode. I think they enjoyed it, but felt a little uncomfortable to talk about uh, certain themes and subjects brought on in this episode. And I think there is, uh, I think there's, <laughs> some problems maybe, I guess we'll get to it, but maybe we'll save that, uh, that sort of portion of the storyline for the latter half of the podcast. And we can focus on, you know, just like the easy pickings <laughs> for the beginning and really, <laughs> really dive in towards the end. Yeah. Uh, I can see where their concerns are coming from and I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on it because I'm already solidified on my viewpoint on how I would approach things. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. at the end, I am genuinely curious to hear your thoughts on it. I don't think we've actually discussed it right now. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of new territory for the narrative, the overarching narrative, of the entire of the entire series. Cause this is new territory in a way for, for Joel and Maggie. Before we go any further, I should say that the, the, the to be guest for this episode, uh, they are definitely interested in returning. So, I mean, it's going to remain anonymous, but, uh, suffice it to say that although they didn't want to, you know, weigh in on this episode, they're eager to watch another episode. Okay. First order of business. And this is where I would slam a gavel if I had one. <laughs> Valerie Mahaffey, baby. She's back. <laughs> I was going to say, please don't slam a gavel. It'll be like too loud for the microphones. <laughs> Uh, yeah, your fa one of your favorite characters, Valerie Mahaffey, who plays Eve, 
Eve is back. Uh, yeah, what do you th- what do you think about Eve on this episode? I thought that she did a delightful job. That she did a lot of great physical comedy. Like, uh, <laughs> so the quip that we played at the beginning of this episode about you know Joel asking about already being married. He's talking about Valerie being the I'm sorry Eve. I should say yeah. the character's name, <laughs> being the fantasy wife. And while he's saying that, Eve is kind of like picking food out of her mouth. Like, kind of <laughs> just like, like sloth-like and just really going into the caverns yeah. uh, and just, just digging out salmon. And I think that's hilarious. And it no doubt was played for comedic purposes. Yeah, you know, I think we've established on the podcast that I'm not the biggest fan of of the character Eve, but I think she's doing a great job in this episode. I think, at least in my opinion, any episode that she's in, she sort of goes over the top here or there, but for comedic purpose, you know. Uh, but no, I, I think it's a, a delightful, I, I really like their relationship. Whereas in the first episode, it set its own precedent. The first episode that we see Adam and Eve together, this is kind of a whole new thing, uh, and I'm digging it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that. The whole episode is predicated on this wedding that's going to happen. And curiously, it it didn't occur to me till I finished the episode on Eve's ulterior motives. So throughout the episode, Eve is kind of spatting with Adam and she doesn't want to get married, but she's not outright saying it. She's trying to find reasons for them not to be married. And one of them is uh, faith. Like they have... (laughs) different belief systems right there and i really like how adam says all right all right all right i'll convert and then eve like cocks her head up really fast and she goes you will (laughs) it's hilarious i think i watched that scene like three times (laughs) man yeah charles you uh, positively adore valerie mahaffey like these are a lot of things that you know i guess i noticed but they don't stick with me as much but you know i can tell that's good that, that you know Valerie has that sort of effect. She has that charisma on screen. Um, I do like that scene you're talking about because, again, Eve is trying to figure a way why they, you know, a reason for why they don't necessarily need to get married. And she says, you know, I'm a Christian scientist, uh, which is, I guess, correct me if I'm wrong. I could be totally wrong here, but isn't it that Christian scientists, uh, that people of that faith typically denounce medicine or don't seek medicine for uh, treatment? Uh, yeah, according to Wikipedia, it says it originated in 19th century New England with Mary Baker Eddy, who argued in her 1875 book, Science and Health, that sickness can be healed by prayer. But then a couple of paragraphs down, it says the church does not require that Christian scientists avoid all medical care. Adherents use dentists, optometrists, obstet- obstet- Yes, finally. <laughs> Physicians for broken bones and are open to vaccination, especially when required by law, but maintains that Christian science prayer is most effective when not combined with medicine. Yeah, so there's a little dig that Adam says. Whenever Eve says she's a Christian scientist, Adam says, you're the poster child for the AMA, the American Medical Association. <laughs> and uh, we find out that Adam is a Quaker. So yeah, he says he's going to convert. And... Uh, Valerie Mahaffey plays into that. Oh, there is another little factoid that I sort of picked up in an earlier scene. There was the scene with that, with the opening bite that we played when, you, as you said, uh, Eve is like picking salmon out of her teeth and stuff. Uh, the button at the end of that scene is 
Um, you know, Adam is giving, providing food for Eve and she's eating from these little Tupperware containers and she asks for salt and Adam says, better not. So I had, I was kind of unsure of what that, what the meaning was there, but I assumed it had something to do with pregnancy. Um, and I'm no expert on this, but, uh, just kind of a quick cursory search online. Some sites do indicate that it's probably a good idea to limit your salt intake during pregnancy. Uh, apparently too much sodium can cause excess fluid retention. So, you know, I don't know how good or bad it is, but yeah, I think that's what the joke relies on there at the end of that scene. Oh, okay. I just wanted to very quickly go on the record and say that we are not medical professionals and uh, I just searched this on Google. So uh, please, before you change your diet or anything like that, definitely consult uh, your doctor. Oh, did you know that salting your food in Egypt is considered to be a huge insult? Like you just slap them in the face when you do that. Yeah, I think that's a thing, you know, in general, you know, because like you get the idea of like at a fancy restaurant, there are no salt and pepper shakers because the the chef or the person who prepared the food, you know, prepared it in, in such a way that it would be sort of um, disrespectful to alter that. Yeah, yeah. It's like bringing like A1 sauce to <laughs> like a really fine dining establishment, I guess. Um, but no, I, I thought I was, uh, really curious that they particularly care in Egypt. That's a real huge deal. So what else happens in this sort of Eve storyline? We get to see that Shelly is sort of obsessed with weddings. You know, she somehow gets Eve to sign off on the idea that, you know, Shelly is, Shelly just wants to be the maid of honor. I, I think it's because Eve doesn't have any wedding party. And so Shelly's like, no, you have to have a, a maid of honor. And uh, yeah, somehow Shelley become fills that role. You know, I thought it was a interpretation that Eve didn't have any female friends or even just friends in general. Yeah, no, I think so. I think I I think it her not having a wedding party sort of shows that she's not you know really invested in the wedding. Again, we were saying she's trying to find all these different reasons for you know like oh do we really need to get married? Can we just like sign a paper? Yada yada. So there's that, and then there's also, yeah, I think the fact that, again, she's probably far away from home, but yeah, she doesn't really, I don't know, do you think she doesn't have very many friends? Obviously yeah. none in Sicily. Yeah, none in Sicily, but I would say that her abrasive uh, <laughs> personality, along with Adam's, kind of makes them, I would say they have less friends than the ordinary American citizen. <laughs> um, yeah, so everyone's kind of... Preparing for the for the wedding in, in various ways. Again, Shelly is going to be the maid of honor. She organizes like a bachelorette party, but um, we'll get more into that a bit later. Uh, also, the townsfolk of Sicily are folding origami cranes. Apparently, a thousand cranes bring you good luck. Yeah, yeah. That was a belief in Japanese culture. Um, the reason you fold a thousand of them is because it's believed that a Japanese crane lives a thousand years. So, hence, one origami crane for each year. Nice. There's actually a really neat story on this that I saw on Wikipedia. Um, so, 1,000 origami cranes was popularized through the story of Sadako Sasaki, which was a Japanese girl who was about two years old when she got exposed to radiation from the atomic bombing of Hiroshima in World War II. And she got leukemia. And at around age 12, she started spending a lot of her time in the hospital. And while she was there, she began making a lot of origami cranes. And she wanted to get to 1,000 because she was inspired by the legend. 
Now, in a fictionalized version, she folded only about 644 before she became too weak to fold anymore and died on the 25th of October, 1955. So in order to honor her memory, her classmates agreed to fold the remaining 356 cranes for her. And in the version of the story told by her family and classmates, the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Museum states that she did complete the 1,000 cranes and continued past that when her wish failed to come true. There's a statue of Sadako holding a crane in Hiroshima Peace Memorial Park. And every year on Odon Day, people leave cranes at the statue in memory of the departed spirits of their ancestors. So it's kind of sad on the fictionalized version, but um, really kind of nice that she got to her goal on the real one. But either way, the end result, incredibly sad. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's a lot of different legends, I guess, building off of that. But I think it's a really beautiful sort of dream or idea it, it is sad the outcome but uh i do like i do like the cranes in this episode i think later we'll see in the church it's uh decorated with these 1000 cranes of, of all different colors and uh the way they're introduced in the episode is like maggie sits down at the bar at the brick and she's just admiring uh this sort of big like lumberjack guy like he's got this paper crane and she's like, oh, wow, you made that yourself. Um, you know, and, and later Joel asks, you know, what's up with the, the birds, you know? And Marilyn is the one to, I guess, give a very brief uh, summary of the 1,000 cranes bring good luck. Uh, that I wanted to point out, I think it's that, that bar patron, that big um, lumberjack guy who's like folding that first crane in the episode. I think later in the episode at the bachelor party, Ed sees him. He says, oh, hey, Catfish, how's it going? It's been a long time. So Catfish is introduced as a new background character. I think that the tradition holds, I, I, I'm pretty sure I'm right on this, but I'm also pretty sure I'm wrong. So let's go with 50-50. But I think <laughs> if you have to be the first one to start it and the last one to end it on the origami cranes in order to get the luck. Oh, interesting. So it would have had to have been like Adam and Eve make the first two, I guess, and then the last two. Yeah. Fascinating. So we talked a little bit about Shelley, and Holling is sort of the outside observer. He's noticing how much Shelley is wanting to become involved in the wedding, how excited she's getting. I think she even openly says to him, like, it's every girl's dream to be queen for a day, and like every girl just waits for that that wedding day. And again, you know, Holling, we've seen before in previous episodes, he gets a crick in his neck, like he's getting very tense and nervous. Later in the episode, he's going to be wearing a neck brace. And I think there's a scene with, yeah, Adam and Holling where Adam does some like chiropractics on Holling. Yeah, it's a physical manifestation of his guilt for not marrying Shelley. And it manifests itself by having a little crink in his neck. So on that scene, which I think is kind of a neat scene because Adam's practicing the chiro... Uh, what is it called when he practices? Is it chiropracting? I don't, I don't know if it's um, actually, it's hard to say. I don't know if it's chiropractic or chiropractics with the S, like when you're talking about yeah. like using it how you would. So yeah, when he's, do, when he's doing that. Oh, okay. Got it. <laughs> so when he's doing that, uh, Adam kind of sorts through the issues that he's having within his own head. So it's kind of like he's curing somebody, but also curing himself within the act of curing someone else. Yeah. In a way, he's giving some exposition to explain what you know, what's really going on in Holling's mind. If you haven't been watching the show, you can kind of piece it together. And yeah, it's it's cool. It works on another level where it's he's sort of um, working through these problems himself, Adam, that is. 
Okay, so we get to the wedding day, and Chris is determined because, of course, he is. He's, he's like, <laughs> apparently, like anytime, like any important position is needed, they just get Chris to go do it. Yeah, he's like the. It was the wedding officiator. Remember, he he answered an ad in the back of Rolling Stone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that he pulls up to the church in his motorcycle, but he yeah. parks it like right next to the stairs of the church. Like, there's no parking lots whatsoever, <laughs> from what I can tell. He just parks wherever he wants. Yeah. But yeah, we get to the wedding day and Shelly's kind of got everyone dressed up and she's making sure that everything's good. She's kind of like the coach in this situation. She's like, mm-hmm. all right, everyone, you need to get your, like, your fingernail polish is good, back straight, walk with purpose, <laughs> you know, all that. Yeah. Adam is uh, all tuxedo, but no shoes. Like I think, I think there's even like an insert shot of his feet. Adam says, you know, like I tried, I tried to put the shoes on, but it was too painful. Yeah, Adam's wearing a black water plaid tux, which is kind of unusual for a wedding. Uh, that's like a stylish smoking dinner jacket uh, yeah, type of thing. It it feels less like fancy, like opera or something, and feels more casual for some reason. Yeah, and he's got his beanie on, bright blue. That's true. Doesn't even change it to like, I, I don't know, I don't like pink he, or something? <laughs> yeah, I don't think he ever takes it off. So, yeah, what happens? They're all gathered in the church but we can see that Eve sort of in the back of the chapel is unsure of something or she's like kind of questioning herself and she makes it maybe halfway down the aisle and says, I can't. And we get like a quick shot of Shelly whose eyes like uh, look over to Halling. She's standing next to Halling. So like right after Eve says, I can't, Shelly sort of glances over at Halling. Yeah, uh, I can't remember, correct me on this. Does that play out the same way in the season one episode where Shelley and Holling almost decide to get married? Like, does Holling make it to about like halfway through the church and then decides to get cold feet and leave? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I don't actually remember like the staging, but it's ultimately kind of the same result. Yeah, like I think Holling says, look, can we talk? About, or he's, I don't know if he says I can't or he says, can we talk about this in private? And so they go outside and I remember everyone is like, you know, once they leave the chapel, everyone runs to the window to like look out the window and spy on them. <laughs> see what's yeah, going I remember on. that. Because they're sitting at that little picnic table that we see again in this episode later, uh, and they're kind of talking it over. So they agree not to get married, uh, Holling and Shelley. Yeah, I mean, it's like a similar um, uh, result, but totally different symptom of why. Because it turns out that Eve is loaded. Yeah. Eve is an heiress, as she says. She has a large inheritance that she doesn't want to lose uh, in a marriage to Adam. And, uh, you know, Adam kind of, that's actually a really cool shot because I think Adam uh, walks down from like the, I guess the, what would you call that? The altar. He walks down from the altar and the camera like moves backward as he approaches Eve and sort of meets her in the middle. And they kind of talk it out. And um, I really love, can I play this little soundbite? I really love Adam's freak yeah, out Yeah, here. yeah, yeah. Why was I cursed with a woman like you? You're nothing but a misery. You're a knife in my heart. Look, let's discuss this later. Let's just get married now. No. <laughs> yeah, no. That is a great freak out from Adam right there. It, it kind of confuses me because, one, have they never heard of a prenup? <laughs> like it, it, it takes till Bernard till they bring it up. Yeah. But I, I, I'm surprised like the concept of a prenup didn't occur to Eve to use earlier. And number two, 
I kind of like that she's the heiress of like a strange material, like tungsten. Tungsten ore, yeah. Yeah, and it makes sense what she was saying. She was like, uh, you know, you never thought about how like you got all those gifts of different design, but they all shared like the same material and it, it was tungsten. I got it from my father and everything. She is right on that. Tungsten does have numerous applications. Like it can be used for incandescent light bulbs, x-ray tubes, electrodes and gas tungsten arc welding, super alloys, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> it can be used in a lot of things. So... Definitely something you want to be rich in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you bring up a good point. I mean, have they never heard of the prenuptial agreement? But so, yeah, it kind of comes when Adam and Eve are sort of at this impasse. They don't want to get married, even though everyone's here. And Bernard stands up and he says, may I make a suggestion or, or you know, something like that. <laughs> I do like how he has that, like how they framed that scene. Yeah, because he's, you know, we... I guess we kind of didn't really go into it on this episode of the podcast, but he's he has an, a background in sort of accounting and money and, and, and things like that. I think in the beginning of this episode, he mentions that he's on his way to Russia to do some CPA work there for some reason. He's going to do the uh, he's going to do the old ferry across the Bering Strait from Alaska yeah, to Russia. It's kind of strange though, because the United States goes off of a gap. There's two A's in that not just one. It's mm, definitely not the clothing okay. retail store. <laughs> it's generally accepted accounting principles. And we go off of that in the United States, but other countries go off of IFRS, which is International Financial Reporting Standards. So there's two different accounting standards uh, between the United States and other countries. So you kind of have to know both ways. So I guess Bernard would have knowledge on that if he was a CPA. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I really don't know, to be honest, because I, I myself am an accountant, but I don't think that you would be trained in IFRS to such a large degree mm-hmm. that you could be called over to Russia and to go aid them right. in their papers. Um, we we know some of them. Like, I got taught some of the differences in schooling. But, like, uh, otherwise, they were like, well, presumably, y'all are American citizens. Y'all going to stay in America. We're not going <laughs> to teach you IFRS. We're just going to teach you GAP. Yeah. So, yeah, kind of odd. But props to Bernard if he's got the skills. Yeah, I mean, well, what do we know about Bernard? He used to work for the IRS. I don't know if that is like big boy accountants, but at least when people think about accounting in America, I guess they they think IRS. So I don't know, maybe he was in part of some like exchange program. (laughs) I don't know, but uh, (laughs) perhaps he, you know, he seems to be smart enough, you know, perhaps skilled as an accountant that he could, uh, maybe it's uh, on a mission of his own sort of self-knowledge, like he wants to improve his understanding. So he's going to go learn this strange new code, I guess, in Russia. Anyway, uh, what results after, you know, during this prenup sort of contract scene uh, is sort of like this very interesting wedding limbo uh, sort of environment, the setting that that plays out. I really like it. I like it's we sort of see the inside of the church chapel and everyone is, you know, still dressed up in their Sunday best, but they're kind of walking about uncomfortably and, you know, aimlessly. There's some kids that are like playing itsy bitsy spider on the church piano. And uh, this is in this in this scene, you know, Holling and Shelley sort of talk about how they never got married. And Shelley, you know, is happy. She's fine. She's not actually pining or she doesn't really want to get married. She explains it more like she's sort of like a fan of marriage. Like she likes to sit on the sidelines, like at a hockey game or something, you know, 
I guess it makes sense. <laughs> her her reasoning with uh, hauling is she says, I would never want to marry you. I just want to shack up with you or something like that. Yeah, she raised the metaphor of like, oh, well, you know, I enjoy watching hockey, but that doesn't mean that I like playing hockey, which, you mm-hmm. know, to yeah. her defense is kind of true. Like people watch football, but there's no way they could throw a spiral. So <laughs> yeah, I guess that the action of the wedding is what she is here for, but not necessarily for her to be in the wedding. Yeah. So, you know, Holling's off the hook. Uh, I think actually though, actually I could be wrong, but I think after, even after Shelly explains it to Holling and everything is sort of concluded and, and mended up, I think he still sort of has that crick in his neck or am I yeah. misremembering? No, 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 you're right. <laughs> he, he gets to the little uh, crink in his neck and I guess it's a way to show or foreshadow that perhaps Holling is still uncomfortable or feels immense guilt about the way things ended. And even with Shelley's explanation of it, it still doesn't aid him. And that's why the problem comes back again, because it's it's brought back to the forefront into his mind. Like he doesn't have Adam's guiding words anymore. Yeah. And even though Shelley is totally fine with it, maybe it suggests that Holling is... Uh is reconsidering marriage. I, I don't know. This That's a little past the scope of this episode, I guess. So while that's all going on in the chapel, in some back room, Bernard is fashioning a prenuptial agreement contract for Eve and Adam to look over and sign, I guess, essentially saying that Adam would get none of Eve's money, you know, in the result of a divorce or, or something like that. And and Fleischman, Joel's back there with them as well, I guess, to serve as a, um, a witness. You, witness, yeah. Yeah, the thing that confuses me about this scene is the two characters of Adam and Eve. So presumably they're getting married because they love each other, right? Mm-hmm. And Adam didn't know that Eve had that much money, but he was still willing to marry her. So why is Eve so paranoid? Which I guess fits into her character. Okay, I'm kind of, you know, I'm jumping the gun and solving my own question, but hear me out here. Why is Eve so paranoid about Adam only wanting her for her money? She's like, well, when you marry me and then like I have all this money, then you're just going to want to divorce me and get like uh, 11 million of my dollars. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, he didn't know in the first place. And even with this knowledge... Presumably, you were safe in the thought that he loved you in the first place. Well, that's true. Adam has proven himself that he loves her even without knowing that she's worth like $22 million. But I do still think that the knowledge, like once he learned that, and that's something that she, you know, she never told him about it. But I think her biggest fear is that once he would learn that, it would change their relationship. And it might make, even though Adam has proved himself, to show that he does love her despite money. I think that's her greatest fear, and that's why she didn't want to get married. And now that she is going to get married, that's going to become, I guess, apparent once they file their taxes or something. Yeah, yeah, that was going to become a real big problem come <laughs> April. Um, she was going <laughs> to about to commit tax fraud. But no, I think that you raise a reasonable uh, rebuttal today. I think that's a really good one. I, I didn't think about it that way. Like, she's afraid that the money will corrupt mm-hmm. Adam. But you make a good point as well. Adam does love Eve despite the money because he never knew about that before. Uh, So we can trust him, I think. I think even after he learns that she's worth that much money, I mean, it comes as a shock to everyone in the room, but, uh, you know, he does ultimately agree that 
Uh, doesn't he agree with like zero? He gets nothing if they divorce. Yeah, well, that's what they were trying to go for. But uh, the scene kind of ends with them saying like, "This will take a while," and they're gonna <laughs> try to broker a new deal. So I don't think that we as audience members know what the final deal was. That's true. Yeah, they never actually show what the bottom line was and the signature. Um, there is. Uh, did you get a chance to watch the deleted scenes here? I did, and it seems like uh, it was one of those things where as an <laughs> As an outsider, I didn't get what was so funny about it, but it was like you had to be there in order to understand it. Yeah, they are cracking up like so much in this scene. And there's even a note on on moosechick.com. There's a note that says uh, the actor who played Bernard, Richard Cummings Jr., um, he was he attended one of the Moose Fests, I guess, over uh, over a phone, like phone interview. And he was uh, talking, I guess, during that interview, he was saying how much he fondly remembered uh, filming that episode because they could not stop laughing. And if you go into the, if you have the DVDs, it's hidden somewhere in like the unexposed footage or something. Uh, but one of those clips in there has just like a laugh track of all the times that these actors are cracking up on set. And uh, most of it comes from this one scene. <laughs> My explanation would be, uh, so largely this scene involves Adam and Eve uh, going really big with their characters. You know, Adam is screaming as he normally does. Eve is very big, uh, a very big character as well. And uh, Joel and Bernard simply serve to just kind of be the straight men in this uh in this setup and they're actually sitting across from each other. And a lot of the coverage is them sort of shooting glances at each other. Like, Oh boy. Oh God, this is going to take, as you said, this is going to take a while. So there's, they have to be silent, but they have to share glances at each other. So I could easily see one of them like making a funny face or accidentally <laughs> laughing and just, not, you know, point of no return. They can't stop because, because they don't have any lines. They're not supposed to talk mostly all they can do is look at each other as these other actors yell at each other and if you listen closely even in this little these little bloopers richard cummings jr the the actor that plays bernard says kind of under his breath he says poor nick i think is what he says but you can definitely hear the word or the name nick and that's the name of the director of this episode nick mark he's a uh, returning i think the last episode he directed was a wake up call in this season <laughs> i like that uh Adam actually punches Joel like on his uh like playfully on his arm to tell him to like to quit trying to break me. <laughs> oh, in the uh in the bloopers, yeah. Yeah, I thought it was really funny. I heard a story once that uh in Seinfeld, Kramer would never break. He was a uh, he's really <laughs> resolute in his comedic timing. So no matter how ridiculous he was on his character, he would not break. But the actors playing George and Jerry Seinfeld and Elaine, they would always break from his antics. And yeah. he would get so mad. Like Kramer, <laughs> Michael Richards would always get really mad at all of them because it took so much effort for him to keep it in and to like keep portraying the character of Kramer and to keep playing it that way. But whenever they break, they're making him break as well. And he felt that, like that wasn't professional. So uh, there were stories yeah. where he would actually get like genuinely mad yeah. at his castmates if they would just keep breaking on him. Yeah. I mean, well, uh, filming a TV show or a movie can get maddening because you have to repeat the lines again and again. And if someone 
laughs, that means you have to do it again. And maybe you felt really good about your performance, but it's unusable if someone else laughs while they're on camera. Like you can see in some of those bloopers, Joel, uh, Rob Morrow, like turns his face away from the camera because he doesn't want to be seen laughing, you know, because he's trying to preserve the take, but it's, it's too far gone. There is a fun little anecdote from Nathan Fielder from that show, Nathan For You. Apparently his method of not breaking uh, is he would like push his tongue to the top of his mouth. And so that was what he would do to try to, try to keep himself from laughing. Oh, that's a really good technique right there. <laughs> I think that's one of the things that like it just snowballs once you break. Like once the 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 water is entered into the ship, it's going down. Like it's it's, it's gonna <laughs> sink right there. Uh, I know that Lord Michaels from SNL, he's the creator of it. He gets really mad at cast members that break. Yeah, you know, like Jimmy Fallon would break all the time, and you know he really likes him. But <laughs> uh, like other times, like whenever you would just do a stray breakaway, he felt that like that was dampening the sketch. Like the reason you were even getting laughs in the first place is because you're acknowledging how silly the entire thing is, which he did not like. Mm-hmm. So legend has it is that he gets really pissed at you if you ever break. <laughs> so to kind of tidy up this. Uh... Adam and Eve storyline. As we mentioned, we don't actually see them sign or what their agreement was, but they do uh, both stand at the altar. Chris does his uh, his little sermon, and I'll play a little bite from it so you can hear it, but this sort of closing poem, I guess you could call it, I found out from moosechick.com. It's called Eskimo Love Song. Have you ever heard, es- have you heard that mentioned before? No, I've never heard of that. What is it? Yeah, I don't know if this is, I mean, I tried to look it up and I mean, obviously it's all over the internet, but I couldn't figure out who the author was or what the origin was, but it's, it comes up a lot in sort of like wedding vows and things like that and weird like Pinterest uh, sites, I guess. But um, I don't know if it was very popular in weddings or just like pop culture of the nineties, but um, yeah, let's, let's listen. Chris will recite it for us. You are my husband. You are my wife. My feet shall run because of you. My feet shall dance because of you. My heart shall beat because of you. My eyes see because of you. My mind think because of you. And I shall love because of you. Are you guys cool with that? Then kiss. Well, it's better than 1 Corinthians. (laughs) Wait, what is 1 Corinthians? Oh, you haven't heard of that one? It's the one that they always play at weddings. Uh, it's like almost to a point that it's a cliche. It's the love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. People use it all the time in weddings. I've definitely, yeah, I've definitely heard that. Yeah, I also like how as Chris is reciting this uh, Eskimo love song, he his hands uh, get go up higher and higher because he starts with feet, then heart, then eyes, then mind. Uh, and yeah, I like his, <laughs> his sort of casual, are you guys cool with that? Then kiss, you know? And uh, the episode ends with sort of this ballroom, jazzy type music and Eve tosses the bouquet. All of the sound slowly drops out. We just hear the music and uh, we get sort of like a bird's eye shot of the crowd, like, I guess, anticipating the bouquet, but everyone scatters and the bouquet just hits the ground and everyone sort of walks around it, almost like they're afraid to touch it. 
And uh, the last shot is a close-up of the bouquet on the floor. I think we see, like, Chris's boots stepping around it. Yeah, that was really funny that Chris goes into a whole spiel about, you know, becoming stronger with marriage and love and unity. But then no one buys it because they don't want to get married. I think so everyone, it's like empty statements. Yeah, I think it's kind of like we're a lot like Shelly. You know, it's like everyone really can get hip with the idea and really enjoys it, but just just not yet. I'm not, you know, like everyone kind of sidesteps it. And uh, forgive me for rushing through, but uh, we can quickly talk about Maurice in this episode. I just kind of want to dash through it because uh, it begins with Barbara Szymanski, as we mentioned, returns in this episode, uh, but seemingly only to serve Maurice with a complaint that I guess one of his neighbors claims that his cows have been the target of some demolitions that Maurice, what is Maurice even doing on his property with explosives? Is he trying to like flatten the land? Like, like make dirt come out so that he can level it? I don't know. Did they, I don't remember if they explain it, but yeah, we do later see this, uh, his neighbor Irving, uh, Irving's cows are all in bandages and stuff. Well, so when we first see Szymanski, she's all business and doesn't really want to, as much as Maurice is really asking her, he's like, what happened? Like, could we go back to the old way? I guess he really still has feelings for Szymanski. Um, And that first scene, no go. But in the very next scene that she's involved in, she is the one who, you know, after she sorts out this sort of complaint between Maurice and his neighbor Irving, she seems to be wanting to patch things up with Maurice what do you make of that? I thought it was really strange, to be honest, because I, I'm i not too sure what they're trying to get out of introducing or reintroducing Officer Szymanski with Maurice. So the way that it resolves itself is that the Szymanski is still kind of proud that Maurice held his head high and that he gave it his best shot and it just didn't work out. But his scenes are really short in this episode, and I don't think it goes into the other themes of the other two plot lines too well. Uh, I'm sure that if we pushed for it, and that is the motto of this podcast, <laughs> you know, for us to overanalyze, uh, I'm sure if we did that, we could find the common thread that unites all three. But I feel like it would have been better if they just concentrated on these two plot lines and just erased this one. What What is your opinion on it? Yeah, I'm going to have to agree with you there. I think... It's too little of Szymanski, and literally the first scene she will have nothing to do with Maurice. The second scene she's in, she wants to patch things up, and then I think the last time we see her, she sits down next to Maurice at uh, at the wedding. So she joins him there. So it's kind of a happy ending for them. But I mean, what exactly happened? Like it's it's just it just it's sort of like events that unfold. It's not really character motivated or actions that occur. I'll say this, there are deleted scenes for this episode at the bachelor party where um, we do see in this episode, Joel and Maurice are smoking Cuban cigars and drinking, you know, some uh, dark liquor or something. Um, so we do see that in this episode, but the deleted scenes actually have more of that. And the, their conversations I don't really find super enlightening or enriching for the episode, but they do focus on, you know, men and women and how we don't understand each other. So I guess that's, I guess they brought Szymanski in to sort of bolster Maurice's position in that argument. 
so that he has something he can be talking about while Joel has something that he can be talking about. So they're they're talking about the same thing, but differently. That's yeah, my best guess. I saw that too in the deleted scenes where they're sitting at the bachelor table, smoking cigars and pontificating on the differences <laughs> between men and women. I don't think you needed to introduce Officer Szymanski, though, to make us believe that Maurice would be having these troubles. I think that we know Maurice enough as a character that he would have this insight into the differences between yeah. men and women and the societal changes between them and, you know, all of that. I would have bought it without yeah. Officer Szymanski. I didn't need them to introduce that. Now, if they did it with, like, other characters, like if they did it with Ed... Okay, yeah. I would understand. Like Ed's going through some troubles. So Ed's sitting there at the table with him. But Maurice looks like he's grizzled. He's a he's a veteran <laughs> in this type of stuff. So, yeah, I I think that was a mistake. You know, it kind of reminds me of I think it's the episode of Hunting We Will Go where uh, Maurice kind of talks about, or maybe it's Animals Are Us. It's Animals Are Us where Maurice talks about the differences between man and animal and sort of like these weird the way that dogs or other animals have like a sixth sense or something. Um, similarly, it, it just reminded me of this scene here where he's just, they're kind of musing, pontificating, as you said, about the differences between man and woman. And it doesn't really accomplish much. I guess it enriches in a little way, but for me, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's, it's a, it's something that could be excised, could be removed from the episode. And, and they did cut like two scenes from that portion out of the episode. All right, let's get to the final plot line. So it turns out that Maggie remembers about Joel, like that whole thing that happened last episode, mm -hmm. it's continuing forward, which yes. is kind of neat because usually they don't do that. So th for those of you who haven't seen the last episode, the one before this, what had happened was that Joel and Maggie somehow got into a zany situation <laughs> where they had to share the same hotel room right there. And... <laughs> They kind of fell for each other, and Maggie wanted Joel to come on to her, and Joel was, you know, all for it. But then Maggie, with sleep deprivation, kind of fell asleep, just passed <laughs> out onto her own bed. So when Joel comes across that, he decides to be, you know, respectful toward her wishes, that she was already asleep. So he's like, all right, well, I'm just going to leave her alone and just let her sleep it off. And in the morning afterwards, Maggie believes that they actually did do it, and Joel kind of doesn't disprove her. He's like, yeah, uh, we did. You know, let's just say that. Well, 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 well let me let me let me hop in here. He he does a little more than that. He sort of like toys with her because, well, I think for Joel, he sees that like she would rather not admit that she for she just had no memory of what happened. You know that she you know she she just made it up. You know she's and he, he thought that was incredible that she would make it up though he knows it never happened. She's just not remembering because she fell asleep. So he does kind of like hold it over her head a bit and sort of toy with her. He's like, you know, it was crazy. Yeah, when we did that thing, oh, surely, surely you remember the thing, right? That was crazy. And so he's kind of like having fun. But later that day, uh, you're right, Charles. That's when he he's about to come clean and be like, look, O'Connell, I got to tell you something. But before he can do it, I think they kind of try to interrupt each other multiple times. But finally, she gets the first word and she says, let's just forget it ever happened. We never did it. Let's not talk about it to anyone in town. Now that we're back in Sicily, what happened in Juno stays in Juno. Okay. So that leads us to this episode. So it continues on where Maggie believes that Joel actually slept with her. And then Joel kind of just admits it in the beginning of the episode that no, that nothing really happened between the two of them. Yeah. Well, I think it begins because 
O'Connell, sorry, Maggie, is trying to avoid Joel. You know, anytime they bump into each other on the street, she says, oh, look, sorry, I got to go. I wish I could stay, but I can't. Um, So it's awkward, and he can see that, you know, somehow the word may be beginning to spread because there's a scene with Joel and Eve on the street where Eve somehow knows because Adam told her. And again, like Adam is maybe only Adam and Eve know because Adam somehow magically is like this crazy spy-like character. And he seems to know everything, every minute detail about everybody's life, including like Joel and Maurice. So it's possible that maybe Adam did some covert espionage and figured out this happened because Eve accuses Joel of essentially having his way with Maggie. (laughs) Joel denies it, but of course, like he's, it's like he's been besmirched, like nothing can save him. So he needs to go talk to Maggie and that's what, that's what you're describing. Like he goes to her house that night, kind of flat out um, explains it to her. Yeah. Do you know what else is important about that scene? Oh, wait, what is it? Uh, dog I watched 2020. This is the <laughs> yeah. first time in this episode that a dog ran through the streets. It runs between Eve and Joel when they're walking. Yes, there's like a dog in there. I think we were very sad last episode that I don't, I don't think we noticed any dogs. Maybe they're hiding. Maybe it's like an Easter egg, but... We didn't see any dogs last episode. Uh, there is a dog in the back of a truck. I think it's in this very same scene. Do you remember that? Wait, what? I didn't catch that. Yeah, there's like a dog sitting in the back of the truck. And I think it's the same scene because in the scene with the dog in the truck, I remember there's like a dog that runs across the streets. There's like multiple dogs on all levels. Truck, ground, street, all that stuff. Oh, man. I only caught the one that ran, ran past him. Yeah. It seems like it only runs past whenever Joel's walking. Like I don't. But yeah. maybe it's because it, the, the scenes only show it whenever Joel's walking, like he's the only character that does that. Well, I really do love that sort of motif, that unspoken repetition of dogs jumping on Joel. (laughs) Like he's like, yeah, (laughs) get him off me. Like he's always wearing like his parka. So it's like huge bulky clothes and there's like dogs jumping up trying to get him. (laughs) So yeah, so Joel talks to Maggie. It never happened. What never happened? You, me, Juno, physical involvement, intimacy. It never happened. We never had sex. You fell asleep. We never had sex. No. So everything's fine, see? You don't have to have this weird thing between us. We can just go on the way we've always gone on. You son of a We got the B word thrown out on, on primetime TV. Yeah, uh, I guess you get to use one every season. I'm not too sure what the rules are for that. <laughs> one um, per season. Back in 1990s. <laughs> um, yeah, so we were kind of talking about this last episode. Like, what do you think would happen? Because I think we surmised, or, or you were imagining, Charles, like, what if they did end up in a relationship and then Joel told her the truth down the line? Would that sort of like in their relationship, what would the reaction be? Well, Maggie is very mad and, you know, Joel lays it out in his thoughts. It's like, okay, this is, you know, it's fine. Everything's fine now because it never actually did happen. So you don't really have to think about it happening. You don't have to keep it a secret because it never happened. But just the fact that Joel hid this from her, I guess, I don't know. What do you think? I think maybe it's that... You know, we were talking about in the last episode how Maggie maybe dreamed it or had a fantasy 
or you know she just made it up because she doesn't actually remember what happened well when the truth comes out that it never did happen it still leaves that feeling of all these imaginings of what did happen because i guess maggie did believe it happened you know even even though it didn't so she had to convince herself in some way so i think the damage is done for some for some reason she's like very mad yeah i guess what she said makes sense. Like it's irreversible damage because she was already thinking it. So she can't unthink those thoughts. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's, I think it's hilarious too. It's played up for a little bit of comedy because she keeps yelling at him, calling him names and starts throwing objects at him. I think it's really funny because there's like a shot on Maggie. She throws something and then there's a shot on Joel and he's got to try to like use the door as a cover while he's like escaping. And it does this back and forth uh, shot reverse shot. Uh, quite a few times and he just keeps getting pelted with various household items. I love that that scene ends with uh, Maggie throwing something apparently heavy because it <laughs> makes a huge noise when it hits the door. <laughs> yeah, it kind of looked like a tape cassette or something because he brings it up later. He says something like, you know, if you had hit like an inch to the left, then it would have taken out the eye. So Maggie spends the rest of this episode or at least the next 10 minutes of it being incredibly pissed at Joel. Like she's not even acknowledging his existence. She's giving him the silent treatment, which is kind of like, come on, Maggie, you're like a grown well, woman. Well, here's it's like one, she's giving him the silent treatment, but two, she's like obviously very uncomfortable being around him, so much so that she's not going to interact with him uh, from here on out. Like she's set up uh, the other pilot, Red, to deliver his mail. And uh, Maurice is going to essentially be like his landlord now. So she doesn't have to interact with him. Yeah, it's that scene in, in his office, right? And, and Marilyn is talking about like, what does she say? Can I play the soundbite? Let's see. I went there to do her a favor. This is the thanks I get. You had it coming. What? What do you mean? You don't even know what I'm talking about. You're a man. I'm what? That, that means I'm immediately guilty of something? Yes. Yeah, he's just automatically guilty because he's a man. But I think coming from coming from Marilyn, it just like it really it has that single word, like monosyllabic, like it's just totally true. You know, it's like, yes, you're a man. You're guilty. <laughs> yeah, like a universal truth right there. I think that you brought up uh, something that I didn't pick up myself because I think that I didn't pick up on the uncomfortableness that was mm. happening between Maggie and Joel. I thought it was out of theory, which is why I was chiding her. Oh, um, well, you that, might have a good, I thought it was going. Well, you might have a good point because uh, later in the episode, Joel and Maurice talk about rage, how like a woman has rage. So, so that makes sense there for like the fury argument. But sorry to mm. sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, 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 no. I just think that like most things in sitcoms and also in real life. It's a communication problem that is causing this problem. So if Maggie and Joel would just communicate and try to really see each other's perspectives, I think they would be happier. And I think that's what's happening at the end of the episode as well, where they have a failure to communicate, where Joel is just yeah, putting yeah. his arms up being like, I don't think we'll ever see eye to eye because of, I mean, either A, we're, I'm a man and you're a woman, or B, because you're Maggie and I'm Joel. Uh, whatever reason that he states, he just believes that they cannot see each other. And I just find fault with that argument. Yeah. Well, maybe we can save that because there is uh, a big juicy scene coming up where, so you, you were saying 
you know, they, it's a, it's a failure to communicate or to communicate really what's going on for, for Maggie and Joel to understand each other. And Joel kind of comes out plainly to her the previous night, whenever he explains, you know, it never happened. But the other side, Maggie's side, just kind of, kind of baffles me. Like it, it's very strange. Okay. Let's just, let's just get into it. So they have a scene later where they kind of inadvertently bump into each other at Ruth Ann's store. Maggie obviously is um, just not acknowledging Joel at all. And he kind of chases her out onto the street and they kind of start arguing. It's like, listen, we can't, this is a small town. Like we can't just pretend like we don't exist. And that's when, uh, that's when Maggie says, um, how could you not sleep with me? And Joel is the one to to say, you know, I was like, I, I'm, I couldn't force myself on you, but for some reason, that's what Maggie wanted. What's what's going on, Charles? Help me out. Yeah, so it looks like that Maggie values passion over other attributes in relationship or um, uh, love life. So she's trying to tell Joel that, like, you need to act on impulse like act on your biological functions of being like i gotta have you now and that's what she wants whereas joel is saying like no i i am civilized i don't have to do that like i think that you i can't just throw caution to the wind yeah so yeah what you're saying is maggie's train of thought is she wants that uncontrolled passion she wants lust she wants to see as we find out later she wants her partner to want her uncontrollably. And, you know, that's like a, something to aspire to in a loving relationship, I guess, to have that kind of love life. But but I don't know, the way she's framing it seems, because obviously Joel is, he he wants like consent and he wants to know that it's okay. He's not going to just throw himself on Maggie if she's unconscious, you know? So I I definitely see the logic where Joel is coming from, I can understand the wants that Maggie has, but I think it's handled very poorly in this scene. Because it, if you're not thinking about what's going on with Maggie, and to be honest, at this point in the episode, I, I didn't really fully understand what was going on until the end of the episode. So this scene kind of is like kind of toxic in a way of just the, I don't know, <laughs> very strange point of view to, to try to hinge your argument on. I, I'm going to take, okay, so okay. I'm going to take a controversial route right yeah. here, and I'm just going to state a viewpoint that I'm not saying that I support, but I think it can be an interesting avenue for us to explore. So if this scene existed in a vacuum and we didn't live in 2020 and we didn't go through the numerous uh, societal problems that have been happening in the later half of the 2010 decades and all the generational shifts and how we should be approaching behavior like this, I think maybe the scene works because all it's trying to show is two different viewpoints and both could be construed as right and both could be construed as wrong. So you're at a quarry. You don't know which way to approach. But when you take it out of the vacuum and you approach it with our thinking, then it falls flat. And like you said, it becomes toxic. It becomes something like you're not even realizing the ramifications of like what you're saying and why it's uh, it's a large societal problem. Well, I'll say just the act of like putting it in that vacuum as you're describing. So you're saying just like if we watch this episode in ignorance, you know, like not knowing what we know today. I mean, I, th I think people knew this 
even in the 90s, even if it was sort of there was a different cultural approach to consent and, uh, and you know, sex and, and things like that. But yeah, I don't know. I still think it's setting a bad precedent, even for Northern Exposure in the 90s. You know, I think it, I think this show, I think it does a lot of good for just a lot of progressive ideas, but I, so I, I can't excuse it, you know, in this case. I, I agree with you though, Charles. For me, the way this scene works is it's sort of like a clever inversion of the storyline that sort of subverts your expectation because obviously Maggie is mad, but then the next time you see her, it totally flips because it's like, no, she actually did want to have sex with Joel, even though she was mad at him in the last scene. So it's a fun sort of bouncing back and forth argument that sort of inverts itself. I think that is the function of the writing here. But I think you got to be a little more careful when you're talking about uh, even even for like an adult program, if this is like Northern Exposure, you know, if we can consider it. I guess it, do we know if it ran during primetime? Yeah, I thought it ran during primetime. I think so, yeah. So adults watching the show, I don't know. I just think they should they should be a little more clear. I am not too sure I 100% agree with that, Lee. I know that Northern Exposure is a very progressive show and are showing ideas that are still talked about today and how we can approach lots of problems that are plaguing uh, civilization and how maybe there's like some uh, new way to approach it. I'm not saying that this is the way to approach it uh, of what just happened between <laughs> Maggie and Joel. But in the 1990s, especially in the early 1990s, I would say that the problem did exist, but it, it was nowhere near where it is in today's time. Where it that less recognized? Are you trying to say it was it was nowhere near as recognized? Yeah, because it was probably happening the same or worse. Oh yeah, no, 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 definitely. I'm not arguing Mm -hmm. that, but the existence of it now is like it's pretty much in the atmosphere. Like we can feel it, Mm -hmm. and we know that there needs to be change, and it should be change. I I can't stress that enough. But I'm saying that like in the 1990s, perhaps that they didn't see the ramifications of their actions so they thought that it could be used as a plot device and that would be fine enough because they just wanted to show differences between men and women yeah i'm i'm okay with agreeing that that that's kind of like what this this show exists in a cultural time that was perhaps different that doesn't mean i don't find it uh less problematic i i still think it's a very uh i don't know i i still think it could have been thought out a little well, I'll kind of back off my criticism because I do think by the end of the episode we sort of we sort of learn a little bit more or I I was able to understand Maggie's point of view. Um so it doesn't seem so crazy as as what's happening in this scene um by the end of the episode. So the next thing to show the difference between Maggie and Joel, they each have their own respective bachelor parties, one for Adam and one for Eve. Mm-hmm. So Adam's party is kind of like a guy's guy thing where they're like smoking cigar and drinking whiskey and um, throwing darts and stuff. Yeah, throwing darts. By in, the it's way, in a bar. Worst place to put a dartboard. Like Joel opens the door and almost gets hit with a dart. Never, never put dartboards on door. <laughs> like, what? Come on, man. <laughs> That's like the second time Joel almost lost his eyeballs. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so continue. The bachelor, bachelorette. Oh, party. yeah. So. That's their idea of the bachelor party. And then for Maggie's side, it's Shelly kind of 
corralling them to go participate in, um, you know, party games where you, like you would sit on a balloon and it pops and whatever number it is, that's the gift that you get. <laughs> I guess like they're kind of um, trying out outfits. It's not really shown clear what. Well, they're like trying to use toilet paper to make uh, a wedding gown. It's like a party game. Like oh make, really? Make is that the what it is? Bride. I think that's what's happening. Yeah. Oh, I didn't understand that. Okay, that's what I was like. Is that supposed to be like a pretend outfit for like <laughs> for the next day? <laughs> like that's what I did. Lost day. me. Because <laughs> uh, she like, didn't. She didn't wear no, it. <laughs> no. I like uh, Ruth Ann. She says, "I don't really think this is something grown women should be doing." <laughs> but she, yeah. it, Ruth Ann is uh, is dressing Maggie with the toilet paper. Yes. Uh, she also doesn't wear nail polish. She like. It's almost like they're trying to say, like, Ruth Ann doesn't subscribe to any of the standard things that women were perceived to want in that time. (laughs) I'll say this. I don't really understand her argument that's going on in this scene. Do you remember this scene? What's going on? So Maggie confides in Ruth Ann and explains, you know, kind of hypothetically, but we know what she's talking about. Ruth Ann probably does too, that she thought it was weird that she slept with Joel and then she didn't want to she didn't want to think about it but then when she found out that it actually didn't happen she f- thought that you know maybe actually she kind of did she really did like Joel and she's she's got like mixed up emotions and there's I think R- Ruthann calls the guilty pleasure she says if you're going to suffer the guilt you should at least enjoy the pleasure uh, Ruthann says you sh- you got to go sleep with them Oh, yeah. That just fits into my previous theory that, like, once you have a thought, you can't unthink it. So, I guess in Ruthann's theory, she was like, well, you've already thought these things. You might as well make it realistic because it's something that you want in a way. I don't know if, yeah. I mean, so I don't think that's a great uh, piece of advice is to, if you have a guilty pleasure, to seek out that, you know, that pleasure, those cheap thrills or whatever. But in this case, I think maybe if if we're trying to explain or make make out Ruth Ann's uh, advice in the best way possible. She can see that Maggie does want to sleep with Joel or she does love Joel or have passionate feelings about him. And so she's advising to do exactly that. Right. And it seems to take habitat in Maggie's brain because she immediately goes in the next scene to Joel's house. And Joel's like, you know, he's getting ready to sleep. He's like in his Columbia sweatshirt and everything. <laughs> and she kind of tells him, it's like, all right, I'm ready to do it. Like, let's just go at it now. Yeah, it's like whatever didn't happen in Juno, let's do it now. Just like that. And Joel is obviously taken aback, but he says, yeah, sure, okay. It's just, you know, obviously it's an awkward proposition and the rest of the scene is very, I think it's supposed to be played for awkwardness. You know, they kind of sit down next to each other on the couch uh, Joel asks if this is okay and puts his arm around Maggie. They start to kiss. And uh, it's some real like Belle du jour kind of stuff. Like, you know, Maggie is, I think her wish is just kind of to be wanted as we kind of alluded to earlier because they don't really uh, do the deed. They They kiss and they kind of roll around, but almost immediately Maggie... Is like okay, okay, we're good. We we did the most important part. I like I like that she says that. She says we did the most important part, the want part. Yeah. So Maggie succeeded in getting what she wanted, and but you know obviously Joel's disappointed that it doesn't go any further from there. And I can kind of understand Joel's frustration uh, in that 
he was promised one thing, or not not promised, but he was led on to believe one <laughs> thing, and then flipped very quickly. And to his credit, to Joel's credit, I think that he takes it pretty well. Like I think oh, he's like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. all right, and he just you know, scene kind of ends. He didn't like fly into a rage or something like that. Yeah, consent is important, you know, and it just it just stops there. Um, yeah, to me, I think this scene really helps to elucidate what's happening with Maggie. She comes out and and says it. You know, she deliberately says explicitly, you know, she just wanted him to want her. And it's kind of silly, you might think, like, what's going on in Maggie's head? Why is she this way and that way? But I think when you look at the episode overall, for me, it was something like, I guess their their relationship has always been very will they, won't they, lots of dramatic sort of romantic tension. And in a way, they never really got to, I mean, it almost feels like they should be dating, right? Because they're sort of this flirty couple, but they never really got to date each other. So maybe in this weird, wound up, confusing way, this is sort of the phases of courtship, like wanting to be wanted and see seeing that in someone else makes you want them more. And, you know, because it starts with this scene, and then later she, we'll talk about it, I guess, in the last scene, she says she likes how he kissed, you know, how he kisses. So it's, they never had sex. They don't go that far if you're thinking in terms of a baseball bases, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. It's a weird kind of serpentine way of approaching a relationship that never really uh, had an arrested development. Is that what you would call it? Yeah, I guess that would be a good way to handle it. And I, I, I see what you're saying. You're saying that like the way that Joe and Maggie have their relationship is that this would be the way to handle it. Like it wouldn't work for other relationships, but between these two characters, this is how it's playing out. Yeah, it never happened naturally to them. So they have to, It it's like they accidentally jumped too far ahead because we're watching the show. We want them to fall in love. You know, the audience wants them. They flirt with each other. It's like, when are they going to kiss? You know, and then when it happens, it kind of happens way too quick in spring break in the, in the second season. And then it's kind of forgotten about. And then they sort of do, but don't have sex, you know, that night. And it's like they, they kind of jump ahead too far without setting the groundwork. And I guess this is a weird sort of psychosexual way of going in this order of courtship, kissing, and I don't know what happens next. Whatever happens next. <laughs> <laughs> so right after that scene, from what looks like the prime difference between two opposite-ended people, Bernard is man in the mics because Chris has to go be the, uh, what is he, sermon? Oh, like the uh, officiator. So this, the is officiator. this is after the, we did the want part scene, right? Whenever, whenever Maggie's like, we did the important part, the want part. So it happens after that scene. Right. So it's right after that. So Bernard starts talking about, you know, the fundamental differences between men and women and how at the end, even with all the knowledge of the ocean between us, we would still want to reconcile that and still want to marry each other, which I thought was kind of a nice parallel. I was like, oh, that's where he's going with it <laughs> right there. And I thought that it was a neat little writing tidbit right there. Now, as to the content of itself, um... I don't know. I, I think it's really tricky territory. Yeah, I think the show does this a lot. It's almost it's almost as if they tell the writers, it's like, you know, don't really, you don't really have to say anything. Just kind of think about it, you know? And I actually, for some reason, sometimes it works. I mean, effectively, there are no answers in 
Bernard's monologue, he actually just asks a bunch of questions. You know, was is it about divine intervention, biological imperative? Uh, the show seems to do that a lot. A lot of what we've called musings. You say uh, pontificating. You know, uh, mm. yeah. But I, I, uh, I didn't think of it that way. This little monologue from Bernard, as you said, it does really serve as uh, sort of bridging the Joel Maggie plotline into the the idea of the main theme of, you know, the our wedding, relationships, weddings. Because to me, I, I was just kind of seeing it on the surface level. He's just kind of talking about marriage. But it uh, it does have some connection to Joel and Maggie. So the last scene, the uh, picnic table outside of the chapel, which we kind of talked about a couple times. Yeah, this is this sort of takes place in the the weird like wedding limbo and uh, Maggie sits down at the picnic bench with Joel. So we're back at the picnic bench that we were in season one where Shelly and Holling were dishing out their right. problems. <laughs> and I like how Joel's kind of leaning back on it, just kind of just looking into the sky. Kind of one of those things, those moments where you're just like, like, where is this? Where's this day going? Like, what's what's happening <laughs> right here? And I kind of like it. Yeah, I love, I really do. I think I said this already, but I really do love that chapter of this episode, the, uh, the sort of wedding limbo. It's such a cool space to inhabit, you know? It's like to be able to be in a scene that's like you're at, you're at a wedding, but it's not, it's like currently like purgatory or something. Yeah, like you know it's an important day, but <laughs> you can't help but feel the moment between moments you're that like is stuck. happening right here. Yeah. So, yeah, I've definitely had that a lot in my, in my life where I'm just <laughs> like... I'm I'm gonna remember this day, but not as much as other people are gonna remember this day. And uh it's still an unusual situation to be found in. But yeah, Maggie <laughs> comes in and she slips in with Joel, and they are hashing things out in that Joel is saying, like, let's just, you know, let's just end it. Face it, O'Connell. We're never gonna have a romantic relationship, okay? We're never even gonna have a, a superficial sexual relationship. You know why? Why? Because neither one of us have the slightest clue as to what the other person is about. Personally, I can't begin to fathom what goes on in your head. Nothing you do conforms in, in any way to what I recognize as rational, logical behavior. Let's just put aside our, our, our fantasies and our projections. and we'll, we'll draw a line in the, the sand, you on one side, me on the other. Doesn't mean we have to throw stones. We will maintain a, a civil, cordial, professional relationship. It's funny because... You know, it's one of those things where Joel, I think Jay brought it up last episode, Joel has to be very cerebral about it, um, and Maggie maybe is more relying on, like, her feelings. Joel basically lays out this whole treatise, and it's like, we're not going to attempt to be in a relationship, it's just never going to work out. And uh, Maggie's only response is, you know, that's too bad, because you're such a good kisser. She kind of, like, looks at him coyly. So, yeah, I mean, status quo, we're back to the old will they, won't they. Um, I guess, what can we say? What has been gained? What has progressed uh, in this episode? It's sort of like, I guess, they're in their own weird roundabout way. They're going to try to have a relationship that's um, undefined. I, I don't know. Well, if we're going off of classic sitcom beats, this could be the setup for the finale of season three. Mm. So we're at the penultimate episode where you think that it's reverting back to the status quo. So you already got like the spike in the graph and then you're going down into the denouement. But then that just means 
instead of just going up and up and up, you're going up and then down, but then right back up for, you know, a surprise factor. And that's going to wow the audience on the finale. Because if we had just kept going up and up from the third to last episode and then the second to last episode of the finale, it's not going to surprise viewers when you get to the last episode. You're like, okay, well, now there are a couple. But if some drastic thing happens on the next episode, that is a good way to end a finale. All right, all right. So because we don't have a guest on this episode, we normally will talk about, uh, you know, your predictions for the next episode. So I think, uh, yeah, I think we can, I think we can move into that territory. The, the next episode is called Sicily, number twenty-three, season three. It's the season finale. It broadcast date May eighteenth, nineteen ninety-two. I would have been like, what, one year old or something? Yeah, right uh, around there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so your predictions for the the name of the episode is Sicily. Oh, gosh, that's so... <laughs> you kind of laid it out. It's I so mean, sentimental. Said, yeah, okay. It's such a sentimental uh, episode title right there. So I would say that it has something to do with Joel and Maggie. Um, I would say that it involves the entire town, though, Definitely. obviously. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. it's got... <laughs> the entire town name. Um, I don't really have any wild guesses to it other than I think that something drastic will happen, but not like an interpersonal relationship type of... Uh, so more about the environment, maybe more about the town? Yeah, like something will shift it by its axis. You made a good point. You were saying like, you know, we can't just like keep building up because then it will just deliver on expectations. Something surprising needs to happen. Well, okay, Charles... Next week, we'll be talking about the season finale. So take it easy. All right. I'll see you next week, Lee. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme song was remixed by Matt Jackson. And thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. If you'd like to write into the podcast, you can reach us at Northern Overexposure Podcast at gmail.com. And of course, thank you for listening.